HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hello and welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. I'm Max Sussman. And this is our show. It is. Our guest today is Padraig Fogarty, who is an ecologist, environmentalist, and the lead campaign officer for the Irish Wildlife Trust. Mm -hmm. He's also the author of a recently published book called Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature. So I discovered uh, Patrick Fogarty's work when I was doing research on the state of the environment in Ireland. My educational background is in sustainability and environmental justice, but most of what I learned and studied in school was, you know, pretty U.S. centric. And so I wanted to check out Ireland's environmental movement and to see if Ireland really is as green as people are led to believe or people think that it is. So I started following the Irish Wildlife Trust and Podrick. Um, I started following them on Twitter, and then I read this book, Whittled Away, which is really fantastic. So is there a thing going on? Is this Ireland-specific where, uh, you know, maybe projects are claimed to be very green or environmentally friendly, and they're not? Is this something that happens all around the world? Well, greenwashing certainly is a huge problem, especially in the face of the climate crisis. I think as sustainability becomes to be... Not you know I hate to use the word popular, but as people become more educated about how dire the climate crisis actually is, more people jump on the bandwagon. You know whether it's a it's a company or a corporation or, or even an experienced provider, a food producer, people want to be perceived as being either environmentally safe or good for you because they want to continue to to sell yeah. you their product, and a lot of people are able to get around actually doing the work to actually protect biodiversity or be truly sustainable by using, you know, words like natural or 
even green. And I think it's, you know, especially important when you're thinking about Ireland, because Ireland is known for being green. I mean, the color green Literally is synonymous. Green. Yeah. And I guess Ireland. there's like a way in which we can see that as being a positive development. Like people want that. So people will buy, pay money for that. They want to see that, you know, they want, they want to believe that they're purchasing the things that are being created in a way that benefits the environment. But then also there's a cynical way to look at that, which is that, well, all you have to do is put a little green stamp on your on your thing and say it was one, you know, it has a sustainability award or sustainability sure. minded. And there's no real, there's not a lot of ways to sort of check that. Well, you know, and at the risk of coming across as super cynical, I think a lot of those certification processes or those companies are businesses themselves. And there are people out there that see a market for these certification processes that, you know, perhaps are not truly green and that help companies who are trying to do their best not really go as far as they should. Yeah. So, you know, it's really important to recognize that it's not about blaming an individual person or, you know, a hotel owner or somebody who's trying to do good. There is a lot of really confusing information out there. Yeah. Well, I think that's like why this interview was super interesting because, you know, this is someone who's really involved in in that issue, sort of in the trenches and getting into the nitty gritty of like, what's the difference between uh, saying that you're sustainable and actually, you know, what what is what do we mean by that? What What are the important things that we actually need to do to make that word mean what everybody wants it to? Or is there a better way to talk about it yeah. so that you don't have to peel back these multiple layers right. of understanding in order to arrive at the truth that it is that you're seeking? Yeah. We talk about Irish food and culture on this podcast, but one of the things which hopefully if you've listened to a few of our episodes, you've already identified is the idea that we are trying to uncover in all the work that we do, you know, we're looking to see if something is really green or if it's dyed green. Oh my God. I like didn't <laughs> even see you going there until the, until it was too late. Wow. Like I would say this is still a new podcast and I love how, like themes are starting to emerge organically uh, for lack of a better term, no pun intended with our guests and some of the things we talk about. It's actually really cool to see them come up repeatedly and see how different people engage with them. And so one of them that I think was uh, today was super interesting is sort of this tension between individual action and collective determination for lack of a better phrase. I'm sure there's maybe better ways to characterize that, but like, are we going to solve the climate crisis through individualized uh, purchasing decisions or are we going to solve the climate crisis through a collective action with government action, with policies? And then how do we get from point the point that we're at right now to the point where, you know, we actually are, are winning on some of these issues? So we definitely get into that in the interview. You know, another theme that is coming across through our podcast is this idea that the solutions that we're looking for are already out there and mm -hmm. they already exist. So it, it might make us think a little bit deeper about the language that we use to even talk about the issues and, and, and the solutions or, you know, our, our different methods of adaptation and mitigation and, you know, how we can come together as a community to, to make a real lasting impact. Mm -hmm. Like, so this is a food and culture podcast, but, you know, 
there's no food without healthy environment. You know, there's no lot. culture without a livable planet. <laughs> yeah. Thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. You guys can email us at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org with your thoughts, feedback, comments, or suggestions for f- future shows. And uh, without any further ado, here's our interview with Padraig Fogarty. Welcome to Dyed Green, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. My pleasure. Could, could you introduce yourself and also just talk a little bit about your background and uh, the book you've written? So um, I'm, I'm an ecologist. Um, I wasn't always an ecologist. I started my career as, a, as, a, as an environmental scientist. I worked in pharmaceutical industry, um, but I, I veered into ecology. I work for the, uh, now I work for the Irish Wildlife Trust, which is a, uh, a national non-governmental organization. And uh, the Irish Wildlife Trust has been around for over 40 years, trying to highlight the importance of uh, wildlife and nature. Of course, we call it biodiversity now, but uh, back in the day, it was just wildlife. And um, we do that through a number of, of ways, particularly through communication and outreach. We publish a magazine four times a year. We're very active on social media. Uh, we, uh, you know, we're after COVID, we're trying to get outdoors again and, and do outdoor events with people. But the other side of uh, our work and the area I'm particularly involved in is um policy advocacy and basically campaigning to try and implement some of the changes that we really need to to make um i think it's five years ago now that i wrote a book called whittled away ireland's vanishing nature and really that was uh partly a product of the work that i had been doing at the time and uh i really got the sense that you know, we were doing all this work on farming and peatlands and overfishing and the management of our national parks and so on. And nobody was really seeing the bigger picture. I didn't get the sense that people really knew what we had done and what we were doing to our country, basically taking it apart. And uh, and I thought that when you put all of these things together, it made quite a powerful narrative that like God, jeepers, guys, we're 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 doing something really terrible here, and we're doing it in a it's kind of a blasé manner that um, we're 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 just sleepwalking through. So that's really what uh, prompted me to write the book. I don't know how successful it has been in in delivering the the message, but um, but I hope it is for those who have read it at least uh, that it has helped people to get a get a picture. And I you know really what I was trying to say was not that look that the country is ruined, but that you know we really are at risk of destroying everything if we go on the way we're going and we have to change course while we while we still have uh the chance to do so one of the most popular images of ireland that's you know used in postcards and in 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 promotional images and all kinds of things is a, is a your typical green patchwork of rolling hills um and a lot of people might not know that the reason that that image exists is because of the use of nitrogen fertilizers. And we also know now that Ireland used to be 80% forested. So do you see this image of the Irish landscape as doing the environmental movement a disservice? Is it a is it a fair image? Is it a realistic image? And what does it represent? Well, um, I mean, in, in, yes, you're right. I mean, Ireland has been marketed and I think marketed very well abroad uh, as a beautiful country to visit. And, and it is a beautiful country to visit. But um, 
in many ways, the image uh, of what we have been told is healthy and full of nature is wrong. And uh, this can be quite a hard thing to disconnect in people's minds. Um, I mean, you mentioned about nitrogen there. I mean, our field system in Ireland goes back, it goes back hundreds of years. And uh, people have grown up with, with you know, uh, fields with hedgerows around it. And um, nobody in Ireland remembers when it was 80% forest covered because it was so long ago. So a lot of people feel that that is, that, that is perfectly normal. And then, you know, the fact that, you know, nitrogen now is uh, a very significant chemical on our land is not really noticed by a lot of people. To a lot of people, the fields are still green and, you know, they were always green. So nothing has changed. The fact that a lot of that nitrogen is going into the air is invisible and creating uh, climate change and that a significant portion of it is ending up in our rivers and polluting our rivers. Again, it's pretty much invisible. Uh, people don't see the pollution. So. So the, the, the image, uh, the image is a problem uh, because it's not matched with any level of uh, environmental literacy uh, among our population and arguably among other populations as well. But I think what is possibly more pernicious is the use of that image by a food agency on board BIA is the Irish government body that sells food uh, at home and abroad. And they have kind of piggybacked on that image of Ireland as being, you know, clean and green in an environmentally uh, sense and, uh, and have used that to sell basically meat and dairy products around the world um, by lying about our environmental performance. I mean, there's no other way to put that. And I mean, many people think that this kind of greenwashing is harmless, but actually it is extremely pernicious because it basically it is lying to people about the state of our environment. And because it's doing that, it's basically removing any motivation to do anything about the pollution and ecological degradation problems we have in Ireland. So you can trace back uh, the start of uh, what was called Origin Green, which was this food advertising uh uh, campaign to sell Irish food as clean and environmentally friendly to about 2013, nearly a decade ago. And it's not a coincidence that in that decade, Ireland has done pretty much nothing about our soaring greenhouse gas emissions, water pollution and, uh, and, and extinction of species. And that's because We've all believed the uh, the marketing uh, that you know everything is fine, every, there's there's no problem. So why should we be creating an issue out of this? So that is why the marketing, you know, it starts off maybe well intentioned, particularly the tourism stuff. But you know, you can see how it has got us into a very serious and dangerous situation here in Ireland. I'm curious about that that program with Origin Green, and you know, we believe that. It can be really hard. You know, sustainability is becoming more and more popular. Um, I think there's a lot of studies that show that travelers are seeking out sustainable modes of travel. And that's something that they're looking for when they're booking tours. And, you know, I also know that sometimes it can be really hard to figure out whether somebody is really sustainable when they they say they're sustainable. And I think, you know, the average consumer could be forgiven for not knowing or, or for believing the marketing, whether it's from a hotel or even a, a government board. What is your opinion as to why that's happening with Board Bia when they would have access to 
the types of people that could be making informed, positive decisions about sustainability? Well, I mean, I don't think it is particularly mysterious. I mean, you know, I mean, Board B is there to sell food and uh, and they've they've done that rather successfully. So that's why they've done it. Um, I think, you know, unfortunately, the word sustainable, it really means very little uh, anymore uh, because it has been colonized by marketing agencies and not just in, in the food business. So it's very hard, you know, if you're a company that genuinely wants to communicate your environmental credentials and maybe you're doing wonderful things, it's very hard to communicate that now because your message has been drowned out by the, these larger companies that have uh, basically misused uh, the term. And that's a big problem for us now because, you know, we do have... Uh, food producers in Ireland that are working with nature and that are that are really trying to tackle the, the climate and biodiversity emergency. But, um, but unfortunately, that kind of marketing sensation has now gone. It's, you know, they've burst that bubble and it's going to be very hard to market a genuine uh, uh, environmentally friendly product, I think, from now, basically because they've lied to us. And, uh, and once consumers and citizens lose confidence in what they're being told, well, then why would we believe anything uh, for it? But I mean, to answer your question, the bottom line is that they've, they've done it because they can make money out of it. And it's not like the information wasn't available when they came up with this program, because Origin Green was basically like the marketing side to the Irish uh, agriculture export plan which was called Foodwise, if I remember correctly. And that was published about a year prior to the marketing program. And Foodwise was all about increasing exports and increasing uh, the value of uh, products. And it had nothing to do with, uh, with the environment. And I, I was part of uh, one of the environmental groups at the time that, you know, basically were, we were jumping up and down about this, saying, you know, how on earth can you, can you do this knowing what we, what we knew then about you know, the trajectory of greenhouse gases and pollution and so on. And so they did it in the full knowledge of what they were getting in for. And it, and it comes back to why it has been such a dangerous strategy, because farmers are, have, been, have been told that what they're doing is wonderful. And all of a sudden they feel, hang on, and now we're being told that what we're doing is destroying the planet. How, how can that be? And so farmers are extremely disillusioned. They've been told they've been doing a wonderful job. And uh, I know I, I feel their pain then when they're being told, no, sorry, but everything that you're doing is wrong. And, uh, and that creates a lot of uh, confusion, uh, disillusionment, and uh, obviously misinformation uh, propagates uh, in that environment. It seems like... Part of the problem is, you know, it's a communication issue. It's very easy to communicate, say, goals about productivity uh, and yields. And it's a little bit harder to, to talk about how to be a good steward and take care of the environment in a holistic way. And, and I would imagine that's a, a challenge there. Oh, surely. And I mean, it's not, uh, and in a way, I mean, this is, this is part of just the economic system that we've set up that uh, prioritizes profit uh, over societies and uh, communities and environments, even if that profit is just channeled into fewer and fewer hands. That's not unique to agriculture. And, you know, Ireland has been, you know, as was a member of the European uh, Union, we've basically been following European Union policies, particularly around the common agricultural policy. And, 
you know, the common agricultural policy has been disastrous for the environment uh, since it came into being. And, you know, so um, Ireland is kind of nested within that uh, wider structure. So it's not that they ha- didn't have options. You know, I mean, uh, they, they could have done things differently uh, and they chose not to. But uh, so I don't want to let them off the hook completely. But certainly, it you know, it would have been we would have been going against the grain. Certainly, uh, you know, other countries have been doing the same. Are there industrial and or agricultural frameworks, you know, on a large scale level that you think Ireland can look to for guidance on that or for inspiration? You mean on how to change things? Yeah. Obviously, this is a challenge that we're all facing around the world right now. But is there anywhere to look for for victories in this moment? Yeah, actually, we don't have to look very far uh, because Ireland has been a pioneer of developing uh, farming within natural systems and protecting, say, built heritage, archaeology and so on. And uh, if you may have been to the Burren in County Clare, where they developed this program, uh, it's 20 years ago since they started that program. It's a very unique landscape. It has very unique uh, environmental limitations on it. Um, But basically, there was a roundup initiative to work with farmers. It was supported by the government. It was supported by the European Union. And it was supported by scientists. So we kind of had those three legs of the stool. uh, And it has worked very well. Now, the the problem, you know, 20 years on, the Burren is still, you know, held up as a fantastic model for how Ireland is leading the way in in dealing with uh, these issues. But it hasn't really expanded beyond this small area, the burn. And that's because if it were to do that, we would see the volume of our produce decrease. And, you know, the various processing companies and co-ops and so on that rely on volume for their profit, obviously will lose out in, in that scenario. And so that's why we haven't seen it. So, I mean, we've had really the solution to, uh, or at least, you know, the bones of our solution to the uh, farming and, and nature issue. Um, but, you know, it's just not being upscaled because it threatens the, uh, basically, it threatens the profit margins of those who are, are, are doing well out of the system at the moment. Now, you mentioned the Burren and how they're, they're practicing what I think is called high nature value farming. Um, you know, another thing that's part of the iconic landscape that people see, the images that people see are sheep. And it's my understanding that the reality of the impact of uh, sheep in Ireland is actually quite destructive. And I'm wondering if this is a case of there being too many sheep in certain areas or too much freedom in terms of their range, or if it's a combination of both of those things. Yeah, so this is quite topical because uh, our Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnell, was in the U.S. this week. Um, uh, I think he was doing a trade deal on, on sheep and board beer we're told, are selling Irish sheep in the U.S. as, quote, working with nature. Now, this is a big problem because uh, sheep in Ireland uh, are are one of the most destructive invasive species that we have. Now, there are kind of two types of sheep in Ireland or two ways of managing sheep in Ireland. One of them is in lowland grassy areas within paddocks, and they're not really a problem. Uh, but we also have a substantial population of free roaming sheep in our hills and in our mountains. And these are typically on peatlands. Uh, 
that are very sensitive and uh, and the sheep have just been absolutely enormously destructive because they're not suited to to the landscape and what we've seen is you know, overgrazing of large areas, obviously carbon emissions, we've fires being promoted uh, to keep land in some kind of a grazable condition for the sheep. Uh, we get water pollution, you know, smoke. I mean, people, you know, people are uh, are living in fear in many of these areas that their houses are going to be burnt down. And all the while, sheep production is not a profitable operation. It is only uh, held up with, with subsidies. So it's not that all sheep are bad. And obviously sheep, uh, in terms of carbon emissions, sheep are actually quite low carbon compared to cattle uh, and dairy cattle in particular. But on, on our uplands and our peatlands, where they're just out all the time roaming around, eating absolutely everything, they're, they're an enormous problem. We recently interviewed Dan Saladino and he uh, spoke at length about how the sheep used to be not primarily raised for meat, but for other things that people used. And then only at the end, it would be meat. And I thought that was so interesting to consider how that that shift occurred and how recently it occurred and the ramifications that it's created. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, it's even more interesting to go back to maybe the early 1800s when you would never have seen sheep on the hills in Ireland uh, the hills, you know, had farm animals, but they were mostly cattle and they were mostly small breeds of traditional cattle that evolved to survive in these places. And then sheep were imported from Scotland and a new economic model was, was produced that just put the sheep on the hills and so on. And that, that has been perpetuated. So it's not like sheep have, you know, a particularly long tradition in Ireland, obviously, you know, if it goes back to several several generations. But and it's, it is also interesting that I think that um, is coming back to life in certain places, that there is a realization that, you know, these hardy breeds of cattle, you know, they were bred for a reason. And, you know, they were they were kept in these places for a reason because they could they could survive. And I, I wish we had more scientific you know data to show their impacts of cattle but certainly what I've, where i have seen them uh out grazing in these areas they seem to be much lower impact than sheep because they're not as selective they don't graze the vegetation quite as tight to the ground they will avoid particularly swampy or wet areas and stuff like that so i think it's encouraging actually that we see you know some moving back to cattle away from sheep in ireland I would love to hear what you think about the so-called turf wars that are happening in Ireland right now. I've seen the call to ban turf burning described as an attack on rural Ireland. And I was hoping that you could explain what exactly is going on for our listeners who are likely to be unfamiliar with both the importance of bogs and peatlands and the, the cultural practice of burning peat yeah. for heat. We should probably start with what is turf? Okay, I, yeah. imagine this, <laughs> I can imagine this is quite uh, a novel topic for people outside of Ireland to see such passions raised uh, over peat. Um, but uh, I mean, burning peat for fuel goes back a very long time in Ireland. It possibly goes back over a thousand years. And particularly after we basically deforested our country, people were left without a source of fuel. So uh Cutting uh, peat out of the ground and drying it and burning it has been used for a very long time in Ireland. And it's associated with, you know, labor and hard work and also maybe being outdoors and, you know, 
doing things as a community. And also there's a distinctive smell of it. And it's, you know, it's not an unpleasant smell. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's quite, it's quite nice actually. And so there is a, uh, a deep place for peat in Irish history and culture. And it's not just burning it for fuel. It's in, you know, the poetry of Seamus Heaney. It's in the artworks of some of our best artists like uh, Paul Henry. And, uh, and it's associated with that kind of West of Ireland landscape. So deeply, deeply ingrained in our, in our psyche. Now, the problem with uh, this image of, you know, a donkey with a basket and an owl man with a cap and this special spade out digging the turf on the bog and the skylark singing is that it doesn't exist anymore. It's that that particular version of it is dead. And what has happened in recent years is that Pete became well first it became an industrial process whereby you know whole bogs were strip mined of peat and burnt to make electricity but also there was a smaller scale activity and that was used using you know machines on tracks going across the bog excavators uh, hoppers these things called sausage machines so you know, a, a smaller scale industrial activity, but an industrial scale activity, nevertheless. And uh, it is, you know, enormously environmentally damaging, but it's a source of cheap fuel and it's completely unregulated. People go out and they they've machines cutting bogs that, you know, they may or may not own. Um, there's no environmental you know, assessments done on it. There's no licensing. There's no restrictions done on it. Frequently, it's done on the black market. There's no tax paid on it. Uh, and when the turf is burnt, it's basically poisoning people. It's poisoning them inside their homes and outside their homes. And so there's been an enormous amount of controversy in Ireland over the last two weeks because the Green Party, which uh, is in government, is making good on a government promise to ban the sale of smoky fuel. Now, they tried to just ban smoky coal, but they weren't allowed to do that because of threats of legal action. So that they, they've been proposing that they're going to ban the sale of, of turf as well. And we've seen this really quite a populist outburst among politicians to say, no, never, you won't allow me stop burning our turf. You may as well ask us to stop drinking pints of Guinness or listening to Irish music. And it's an incredibly depressing debate uh, to listen to as an environmental activist, given how much we know about the importance of peatlands and the damage that is done uh, to them. And, and really, I actually think that, you know, a lot of people in the wider public really acknowledge that, you know, we need to stop doing these things. But we've seen an absolutely appalling lack of leadership from our politicians the last two weeks. But uh, but that might give you a flavour as to why it's such a, uh, a cultural touchstone, but a bad, a bad sign for a country like ours that is really only beginning to get to grips with uh, the environmental emergency. And there seems to be, at least I've noticed in the media, more attention being paid to how important bogs are um, in terms of the climate crisis, because I think they're they're one of, if not the largest carbon sinks on the planet. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Certainly in terrestrial systems, uh, they hold an enormous amount of um, of carbon. And, uh, you know, certainly in a European context, Ireland, I think possibly also Finland has a disproportionate area of our country in peatland. In Ireland, it's about uh, 20% of our entire country is in peat in, in some regards. 
And about a third of that peat, surprisingly enough, is actually in grassland. So this has been peatlands that have been ploughed and seeded and fertilised to turn them into grazing pastures for cattle. About another third um, has been converted into plantation monocultures for trees. So uh, typically conifers that grow naturally on the west coast of the US and Canada have been planted in, in monocultures in Ireland on peat soils. And then the remaining thirds uh, are basically what is left for um, everything else from, from industrial scale peat mining to sheep grazing and, and all these other things, but enormously important. And still, despite everything, there's still a vast amount of carbon still in there. And, um, and all of these activities that, that I described, whether it's farming or forestry or um, grazing animals, are resulting in absolutely enormous greenhouse gas emissions. We're only be, the science really is only beginning to get a grasp of just how uh, copious the greenhouse gas emissions are from these peats. And until we uh, restore them, they will just keep on emitting. They'll just keep doing it, possibly you know forever, <laughs> um, until we get a grip on this problem and start rewetting and rewilding our peatlands. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. On that topic, actually, we did want to ask about rewilding. Now, that's a phrase that's been, I think, gaining in recognition, and people have been using it a lot. What does it mean to you and what is what does rewilding look like and what is the role that people should be playing in restoring uh, ecosystems? So rewilding, uh, basically the very short answer is that rewilding is just a, uh, a technique for restoring natural ecosystems, whether that's uh, wetlands or forests or rivers or even at sea, uh, marine ecosystems. Um, and that's all it is, basically. I think... Um, you know, in some parts of the world, particularly in the UK, it has been associated with, you know, very wealthy people. And, and also in the US, I've noticed in Montana, if I'm not uh, mistaken, you know, very wealthy people buying up huge tracts of land. And um, and this has given rewinding a bad name in terms of, you know, maybe some a, a certain whiff of neo-colonialism about it and displacing traditional land practices. But actually, that is something that is associated with nature conservation uh, since the founding of nature conservation. It's not unique to rewilding. So rewilding basically is just allowing uh, 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 space for nature. 
and allowing natural systems to to restore themselves. Now, it was originally an idea from the US that has kind of uh, come over to Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, but it's an extremely useful idea, I think, in Ireland for how we can restore damaged landscapes. And I think if we can combine rewilding with high nature value farming, then we have a template for land management in the countryside. So that, that idea the, uh, to have both of those working side by side acknowledges that for many people, farming is more than just an occupation. It is a, it is a, you know, a, a tradition and a way of life that they want to continue. And I, I have absolutely no difficulty with that, uh, but it, it should be done in a nature friendly way. Uh, we shouldn't allow practices to continue that are ferociously destructive just because they've been going on for the last 50 years. So everything has to change, but we don't have to abandon farming. We don't have to abandon farming in the hills. But my sense is that there's an awful lot of um, farmers out there that are getting old. Uh, they're fewer in number. Um, and, you know, we just don't have the, the population there to go back to the 1950s uh, and farm in that way. So, uh, and we shouldn't be afraid of letting land just go back to nature 100%. And in fact, some of our, our habitats and our important landscapes like blanket bogs are not suitable for grazing animals of any kind. So we do need to provide that space for nature. And of course, it's a, we have an enormous problem now that we don't have basically native forests in Ireland. Uh, they're less than 1% of our land cover. This is, you know, catastrophic from an environmental point of view. So we do need to give an awful lot of our land back to natural processes and to nature. Uh, and rewilding, I think, is not the be all and end all, but uh, but I think it's an enormously powerful tool to, to get us to that end in, in a quick and cost-effective manner. In your book, one of the arguments that you make is that the communities that are most directly affected by the loss of nature are fishermen or fishing communities. Can you... Tell me why that's so. Yeah, uh, I mean, fishing uh, is uh, obviously hunting wild animals. It's quite different to to farming. And so fishermen have been really at the the interface of wild nature for for forever, really. And um, they have suffered most from, you know, industrial overexploitation of the sea, basically, because the fish aren't there anymore. And, uh, you know, it was astonishing really to go back and look at the stories of fishermen in places like Galway Bay, uh, going out in rowboats and struggling to haul in nets that were just, you know, heaving with herring and, you know, every kind of other fish imaginable. And, uh, and today, um, you know, the, the, we still have about 2000 uh, fishing boats around Ireland. Most of those are small fishing boats. So about, you know, maybe 1500 to 1800 fishing boats around Ireland are going out, but they're not catching fish because the fish aren't there anymore. They're mostly fish, uh, catching, you know, crabs and lobsters uh, for high end, you know, restaurant restaurant uh, consumption. You know, that, that is really a catastrophic uh, loss of, of livelihood. Um, that you know went from something that was abundant, nutritious, healthy, diverse, into something that is just a shadow of, of what it was, uh, even when I was a child in the 1980s. And um, so, yeah, so there's, there's no doubt. I mean, I think farmers as well, you know, to a, to a different in a different manner. But but fishermen, because they're they're so uh, you know part of the natural ecosystem, they um, 
the entire, they are collapsing just as the ocean ecosystem collapses as well. So while we're speaking about fishing, one of the animals that I feel a particular affinity for is wild salmon. And I think salmon is a, a type of food that people readily associate with Ireland and Irish culture. Even in the United States, you'll find salmon, smoked salmon on brown bread at pretty much any pub that you go into. And it um, wasn't until, you know, Max and I were in West Cork and we met Sally Barnes outside Skibbereen, who is the last fish smoker in Ireland that works exclusively with wild fish. And so it wasn't until meeting her that I came to understand that so much of the salmon that you eat when you're in Ireland is actually farmed salmon. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that um, in terms of salmon as a as a vanishing species in Ireland. I know, and, and you know, every aspect of this story is completely tragic. I mean, the salmon uh, is such a part of our heritage and um, our folklore. You know, as a child, we all learned in school about the the salmon of knowledge, and uh, Fionn McCool, who stuck his finger into the this famous salmon that the king was trying to catch and and ended up with all the knowledge um and and to see how salmon have uh basically withered into you know threatened with extinction uh is is one of the most tragic stories i think we have from the natural world in ireland and of course salmon fishing was mostly uh banned uh, in ireland in 2009 and uh, that was an enormous blow to uh, the, the drift net fishermen who were catching the salmon. But I mean, something had to be done because the salmon numbers were just collapsing. Um, but of course, salmon isn't just collapsing because of because of fishing. It's, you know, our rivers have been degraded. Uh, there's obstacles put on them, dams. There's basically no salmon going into the River Shannon, you know, our most important river, uh, basically has no salmon in them anymore or any other migratory fish for that matter because of the uh, the hydroelectric dam. Um, and uh, the response then, of course, has been agriculture. But I mean, agriculture is not an environmentally friendly option. It is... Uh, it is seriously problematic. Now, Ireland doesn't have the scale of salmon aquaculture that, say, Scotland has or, or Norway has. But still, we have some um, uh, uh, salmon uh, operations in Ireland. Uh, and they're associated with all the usual problems that we see in other parts of the world, like sea lice and uh, escapes of, uh, of, of the farmed salmon into the wild population that may, you know, who knows what kind of impact that's having on the genetics of the wild population. Um, and also uh, figures that I got actually recently from, um, from our Sea Fisheries Protection Authority showed that about a fifth of all the fish that we are catching here in Ireland is being ground up into fish meal. Uh, and most of that fish meal is going to feed uh, farmed salmon. Uh, it's also going to feed cattle and pets and all kinds of other things. But I mean, it's just an insane waste to be catching fish out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, grinding them up in a fossil fuel intensive business into a paste to feed them to, uh, to uh, an animal that should be roaming the oceans and to see them, you know, swimming around tiny little pens. You know, so really it hits on an awful lot of nerves, I think, uh, the salmon story. Um, it's not just unsustainable. It's, uh, it's an animal welfare issue. It's, um, and it's, it's an awful disconnect uh, with, our, with our 
uh, heritage. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's a sad story. Yeah, I, I have to say also, you know, as an environmentalist, I, I think it's a huge blind spot for e- even people who consider themselves to be fairly well-versed in terms of sourcing where their food comes from. You know, in the United States, the the, the whole idea of eat local is super popular and knowing your farmer and knowing where your meat comes from, even within these communities of people that are very knowledgeable, people just think less about fish and about the sea because it happens under the water. It's not a thing that you that you can see. So it's it's almost like people don't don't think about it. They they don't think about, you know, the same way they do cage free hens, for example. Oh, I mean, I think it's 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 part of a wider disconnect that we have with our food. Um, I mean, I remember when I started in this game over a decade ago, I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe this is just because the knowledge isn't there. So we did quite a lot of work trying to educate, uh, you know, put material on our website to talk about the different types of fish and the, you know, the different kind of pressures they were under, the some of the destructive techniques and maybe some of the better options. And even, you know, talking to my family and friends about these things, you know, I thought that once people knew uh, these things, they would, they would change their behavior, but that doesn't happen. Um, uh, even I, I, I thought in particular scallops, I mean, scallops are, are dredged from the bottom of the sea using one of the most destructive fishing techniques known. And I thought, surely, you know, when people know about this, they will, they will change their behavior and they stop eating scallops. Um, even the people around me who I thought would be sensitive to this kind of stuff, it didn't really matter to them that much. Uh, I, we also did a lot of work contacting restaurants. We thought that restaurants would want to be seen to be sustainable, but really we found very little interest among seafood restaurants in Ireland. Um, they just didn't really want to get into it. Now, at the end of the day, you know, maybe I think, well, you know, first of all, the fishing industry is totally non-compliant with our environmental legislation. And maybe it's not the job of, of, you know, people trying to feed their families or even having a nice night out with their husband or wife on a Saturday night to be worried about these things. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. So ultimately, I think we have shifted our focus away from what uh, individuals can do and what consumers can do and trying to hold the government accountable for, in many instances, the laws and the policies that they have already said they would implement, but haven't. I, as a, as a chef, I completely think that's a really good approach because um, dealing with seafood especially is fraught as a chef in a restaurant. It's really hard to know what you're getting. So it's really hard to do the right thing. And a lot of times people will be spending, you know, two or three minutes ordering for the next day and they don't have a ton of time to think about it. And then you're constantly facing pressure from customers to have stuff that they're familiar with. So the restaurant model as a point of making, you know, of, of being the point at which the change is made is really, is really tough, I think. And I, I say that as someone, I wish that wasn't true, but I also, I see the way things end up working in reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, frequently you go to a restaurant and you're being served by somebody who's maybe a college student or something like that. And we can't really expect these people to have the uh, the knowledge of the fishing industry that, uh, you know, which I accept is completely, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely complicated uh, trying to get even accurate information. I mean, ultimately, you know, a lot of people don't know where their carrots come from or where their or beef comes from or they don't know where any of their food comes from. But fishing is particularly... Uh, it's particularly fraught because 
basically, uh, you know, we have a fishing industry in Ireland where we know they, uh, they've been lying about the size of their tanks on their boats. They've been lying about the size of their engines. Um, they, they've been lying about the kinds of fish that they're selling. So restaurants might buy things and think, I've just bought a box of cod, but actually you haven't, so you've bought something else. Um, so, you know, there's non-compliance issues up and down the line on it. And uh, and I, I think from, a, you know, I, we haven't taken this stand really very strongly, but you can understand why we see documentaries like Sea Spiracy saying to people, just don't eat fish. Just say, if you're worried about the state of the ocean, the easiest thing you can do is just steer clear of it. I don't, you know, I would much prefer to see a thriving, uh, small scale, low impact fishing fleet around the coast of Ireland that was catching seafood, delivering it to their local restaurants, getting a very good price for it and supporting local uh, communities. So that is why we have backed away from, you know, saying, you know, people don't eat fish at all. Um, but you can see why people make that decision. I have made that decision. I haven't eaten fish in many years. So something that happens, you know, something that's really tough when talking about large scale climate issues is that, you know, it's really easy to get disillusioned. It's really easy to get depressed and 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 to come to the conclusion that there really isn't a lot to do as an individual. But then, you know, thinking back, a lot of these changes are just incredibly recent and products of, like you were saying, industrial and state policies. So if you could envision, say, you know, and they all took place over the last 100, maybe 200 years, that you know, 90% of these changes. So if you could envision out in the next 50, in the next 100 years, what are some changes that we could envision and work towards? Well, you see, I think this is where uh, our com- our conversation becomes much uh, more uh, cheery and optimistic because, you know, we we have the solutions. Uh, we, you know, the scientists uh, and ecologists have not been idle uh, or the farmers even have not been idle over the last 20 years. So we pretty much know what, uh, what we need to do um, in terms of, let's say, creating marine protected areas. Um, uh, or ending overfishing. That's simply a political decision to make. Uh, food production is 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 difficult because uh, we obviously need food and we need farming, but we also need wild spaces. So we need to come to some kind of a uh, you know accommodation to say, look, we need forests and we need bogs and we also need farmland. Um, I think one of the solutions uh, that that we have to make in the short term is just deprioritize growth in exporting volumes of food uh, just for the sake of, you know, creating attractive looking balance sheets. We have to put nature and people at the center of our food policy. Uh, We seriously haven't done that in Ireland. And I think, I mean, I get so inspired when I talk to farmers in Ireland um, who are, you know, really making strides to address these problems in complete contradiction to government policy, they're basically going against all the advice that they're being given. They're going against the subsidies. Many of them have decided, look, I, I'm just not going to take subsidies, uh, but I'm going to do this anyway. And many of them are making it work. They're growing uh, vegetables in small plots. Uh, they're they're rearing uh, cattle in you know maybe organic or regenerative ways. They're selling it to their to local people, and they're doing quite well out of it uh, because they're saving a lot of money on fertilizers and uh and uh you know inputs and and so on so 
I mean, ultimately, I think government policies have so such a big role to play in, in our food system. And uh, if we have a government policy that says, look, we just want to grow exports, I think then we're all ruined. But if we have a government policy that says, no, look, we're going to maybe decentralize food policy, democratize it, uh, make it more inclusive, because at the moment, food policy in Ireland is made by, you know, a small number of mostly middle aged men in suits. Uh, that have been sitting around the same table for the last 20 years. Um, and I think that has to change. It's like a cartel. It has to be broken up. And uh, we need more say in how we produce food and how we how we manage land. That's obviously a challenge. You know, we have to change an awful lot. But uh, but it's not it's not uh, uh, an impossible task. And uh, and I think all you have to do is talk to the farmers who are doing it to see that it doesn't mean an end to civilization that we know it. And actually, we can have much healthier uh, rural and urban communities uh, eating healthy, varied uh, diets. I think, obviously, we have to eat less meat overall. That has to become a much smaller part of our diet. I don't think we have to eliminate it. But um, we need to be eating more vegetables and, and more local food and all those other kinds of things. But, you know, th- these solutions have been... Uh, laid out at a local level and at a global level and uh, we don't really have to have to um, uh, try to invent these things but I do think we need to implement them and get serious about it quite quickly. Is there anyone in particular that you might call out as somebody who is a leader that's making strides in sustainability? Well I mean I I would give a mention to the Farming for Nature initiative uh, which again I mean it's it's, it's a, a, a locally locally uh, uh, designed uh, uh, startup, if you like, um, that is based in the Burren and um, and has been, it's, it's become a kind of collective for farmers who are doing things. I quite like it. It's not asking farmers to be perfect. Um, it's, it's just encouraging farmers uh, who are doing the right thing, giving them a platform. And uh, they have, they've been up and running now for three or four years. We did a webinar with them. If you go onto the Irish Wildlife Trust website, you'll, you, can, you can hear from a selection of those farmers and their stories. But, um, uh, and, and this is vitally important work because farmers don't listen to people like me. They're not going to change how they farm because they hear me complaining about greenhouse gases in a, or, or extinction in a podcast. They will change if they see their neighbor doing things uh, and other farmers doing things and go, oh God, that might actually work. And maybe I should give that a go. And um, and that is how a lot of change happens, really. It's over a cup of tea and a chat uh, rather than, you know, a, a government report or, you know, a, a, an NGO campaign. But um and that's why I, I find their work very inspiring uh, and encouraging. And like I say, they're they're doing it um, in direct contradiction to all the policies and measures that we have in place at the moment. Just imagine what we could do if they were actually supported and promoted. Absolutely. Is there anything that you want to add, or issues that you'd want to, that we want to uh, bring up that we didn't touch on that are important to bring out there? Uh, no, I mean, I always like to finish up by just emphasizing to people that, you know, it's I mean, it's overwhelming at the moment, the amount of bad news and the catastrophic future that we face. But I can't stress enough that 
we still have choices and uh, and uh, we can make choices that can stabilize at least uh, the worst impacts uh, that are coming towards us. But uh, but we have to get active as citizens. We're very fortunate to live in democratic societies uh, where it's quite safe, actually, to come out and, and campaign for things. Many countries don't have that luxury. So we really owe it to uh, to to ourselves and to you know, our, our fellow citizens and fellow uh, uh, global uh, friends to really kick up a stink about this and to make sure that we do our utmost at whatever level that is for you personally uh, to, to get those changes over the line in time. Yeah, yeah and I, I per- personally, I think it, it actually feels good to be actively involved in communities that are working on solutions. And it really is an antidote to the fear that you experience if all you do is just read disturbing headlines and worry. <laughs> it really is. And I think uh, maybe uh, the, the U.S. as well, but in Ireland, we're very fortunate that we have very active community groups pretty much everywhere and uh, and at all kinds of scales of, of activities. So so much better than scrolling through, uh, you know, social media is getting out and uh, connecting with those people who are already active in your community. And, uh, and, and very quickly, you'll be feeling part of the solution. Thank you so much. This is a really great conversation. Thank yeah, you so thank much. Thank you so much. I feel like I could have talked to you for many more hours about this stuff, but hopefully we can have you back on the show again in the future. Well, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org. 